0: We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. I am so excited to introduce to you a friend and a colleague of mine. Dr. Heather Dave Duke-Gingrich is so passionate about helping complex trauma survivors as well as educating counselors and church leaders on how to be trauma-informed. She's been in the profession over 40 years. She's lived, she's practiced and taught in Canada, the Philippines, and the U.S. She was a professor of counseling at Denver Seminary for 17 years and recently moved to Northeast Georgia, where she coordinates a five-course graduate certificate in trauma counseling for the School of Graduate Studies at Toccoa Falls College. Heather and her husband have been married for over 40 years. They have two biracial adopted adult sons and adopted their grandson, who is now eight years old. I first met Heather over 10 years ago when I was a guest lecturer at the seminary she taught at in the Philippines. Her husband and she weren't there. They were on sabbatical. But when we got back to the U.S., or when I got back to the U.S., we met at a counseling conference, and we've been good friends and colleagues ever since. So Heather, I'm so glad that you're here. I also have an adopted child and so, and biracial grandchildren, so we have a lot in common, but our hearts have always been knit together in this whole area of helping women heal from trauma. It's
1: great to be here. Yeah. How did you get interested in this subject? Well, God brought traumatized people to me, so it's not something I chose. I feel as though God chose it for me. And when I started doing this work, it was back in the 1980s when people were talking about trauma and, and no one came in to me saying, I've had a trauma history, I wanna work on it. They came in because they were depressed or anxious or they were having difficulty in relationships. And then months later, sometimes years later, then you know a history of, of abuse or trauma would come up. And so that just kept happening. So could
0: you explain to our listeners, what is complex trauma? I think we hear a lot about post-traumatic distress, but we don't hear about complex trauma. What's, What's complex trauma and how do I know if I've experienced or how would someone know whether they have experienced a complex trauma?
1: Right. You know, that question, sometimes even professional counselors don't know the difference, Leslie. And so, but it is a big difference. Complex trauma is relational trauma. Um, usually chronic and often begins in childhood. So we're talking about um, adult survivors of child abuse or neglect of any kind, emotional, spiritual, physical, sexual, um, and, and it's different than regular PTSD because PTSD can be one incident. You know, someone can lose their house in a fire and it can be very traumatic but they can have, you know, a well-formed sense of identity, maybe came from a solid family. And so dealing with the trauma, they just kind of have to deal with that one event. But a complex trauma survivor, if you've been traumatized in childhood, especially at the hand of someone who's supposed to keep you safe and protect you, so there's betrayal, that's part of that. It impacts all of childhood development, as well as having the PTSD symptoms that that another trauma survivor might have. So that's why it's called complex. There's a, a, a lot of ramifications um, if someone has experienced complex trauma. And, and so sometimes, re- it, it doesn't always have to be in childhood. I think some domestic um, violence survivors also experience complex trauma, even if they didn't have any abuse in childhood, just because it's, very often ongoing and and relational, so it can have similar effects. So what I'm
0: hearing you say, Heather, is one of the differentiations between a post-traumatic stress experience and a complex trauma experience is that one affects perhaps you biologically in terms of your sense of safety and trust in a bad incident happening or that kind of thing, but the complex affects sometimes your very identity, who you are. Yes um because your sense of self gets shattered like i thought i could trust this person or i thought this person cared about me or they say they care about me but then they're doing this to me and it gets very confusing the younger you are obviously when it happens the more confusing but even as a grown up yes. when you're in a relationship with someone who loves you and says they love you and then they hit you or they hurt you or they lie to you or they cheat you or they cheat on you or they betray you it doesn't just affect you biologically it
1: affects you psychologically and Cellularly, right. And sometimes, you know, someone's experienced a kind of trauma in childhood. They don't even know what a healthy relationship is, you know. So it may be a better relationship than that experienced before, but it could still be abusive, and 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 someone not even really realize it for a while. But the sense of identity is part of it. But there are even some more basic things, Leslie, like um, just ability to control emotion. Um, to manage emotion. Because if someone is, if a child is being abused, they're not learning what what other children learn from kind of good caregiving of a parent externally helping them to to calm themselves. You know, and especially if the abuse is at the hand of, of that parent, then the child just doesn't learn what they can do with these overwhelming feelings. So they just compartmentalize them or dissociate them or or they just never really learn what to do with them and so struggle their entire you know adult lives too with how do i manage depression or anxiety or stress um it's just a lot harder
0: yeah so the feelings that we all have as grown ups become scarier and harder to manage if we never got any tools growing up yes yes exactly mm-hmm. so besides having this Dysregulation of our emotional life and maybe even some of our biology of dysregulation. We can't sleep, we don't eat right, those kind of things. Right. What are some of the effects of having complex trauma in our history on the individual? What are some of the other effects that someone might experience? You said relational distress in their adult life because they don't know what a healthy relationship is. Not being able to manage your emotions certainly causes more relational distress in the relationship. What
1: else? Right. Well, it's that's uh, you mentioned earlier on identity. It's a sense, you know, an integrated sense of self. That's just um, really hard for someone to really know who they are. You know, if you've got messages growing up that, that you're awful, you've been screamed at, you've been told you're no good, you've been told that you deserve, you know, whatever abuse you're receiving or no one seemed to care enough about you, to love you enough to provide for your basic needs, whether that was, you know food and clothing or bathing you properly or maybe a, maybe you were always dressed nicely and you were bathed but there was no emotional there's no sense of being loved or hugged or um, you know so when you have those experiences then you, you you don't know often how to care for yourself how to love how to love yourself whether you're worthy of love and so of course that impacts relationships it also impacts relationship with god am i worthy of god's love there's just uh, a, a lot of a lot of confusion and lack of understanding about, well, who, who am I really? If I'm how I've been treated, then I guess I'm nothing. Uh, it just, it's difficult.
0: It is. And so if one or both of the individuals in a marriage have some history of complex trauma in their childhood, and then they bring this into the marriage, what impact does that have on the marriage?
1: Oh, it can have a huge impact. If Because basically, um, well, if both people have been traumatized, then that's kind of the worst case scenario because um, they're triggering each other. They're triggering each other's insecurities. And, um, you know, trauma triggers can be anything, right? It can be a, a tone of voice. It can be a color. It can be a certain smell. So, you know, a husband's aftershave could trigger a wife into a fear response because maybe it was the aftershave that her perpetrator used. But if she doesn't know it and just reacts to, why are you wearing that stinky stuff? And, you know, it's like, well, where did this come from? I mean, just, I mean, it's a a little thing, but sometimes it's little things that can then lead into bigger conflicts, right? But especially any, you know, trauma triggers that have to do with, with abandonment or being, you know, afraid that the other person is going to behave in the way that their abuser behaved. And again, if, these, if someone's aware of it, and if the couple is, is aware of these triggers, then they can recognize what's happening, and then they can kind of calm things down and work it through. But very often, people aren't aware. They don't know why they're reacting that way. They don't recognize that it's a trauma trigger, And so it just escalates into, at a minimum, a verbal argument. In the worst case scenario, you know, intimate partner violence, where it actually becomes physical, if that's what people have known in their past.
0: You know, there's lots of reasons someone becomes violent. Trauma might be one of them. They're triggered and they become violent. It might be because they have other psychological personality disorders. Um, And those might be trauma as well. But where do we draw the line between... Having empathy for their past and having empathy for their situation. And so, if a woman was married to someone who had complex trauma, that she did understand that he grew up in a horrible home, that he did have an abusive dad, that he does respond to trauma. But at this point in his life, he is unwilling to own any of that. He's unwilling to look at any of that. He's unwilling to deal with any of that. And she's sympathetic. But she doesn't want to continue to live like
1: this, right. and I think I think the key there is that he's not willing to own up in that scenario to his responsibility. and And it sounds as though in that that scenario, he hasn't done his own work that it takes to heal from his childhood trauma. You know, when we're children, we are not responsible for our trauma. We're little. we 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 can't. We can't do anything about it. We can try to protect ourselves. We can try to run, we can try to hide, but ultimately we're helpless, you know, but, you know, and as adults, if we have been traumatized, there'll be symptoms, there'll be triggers, but as adults, we can make a choice. We can make a choice to seek healing. We can take a choice to make a choice to go, hey, I don't like the way I'm behaving and this is impacting my marriage And so I I think I need help. I think I need to do, I'm scared and I don't know what it involves, but I think I I need to do something. I I have a good friend whose daughter was in a marriage where he used pornography and had been in a, a lot of treatment programs. And she basically found out that he has never been in recovery. So basically their entire marriage, even with accountability partners, even with intensive, he he basically lied to his individual therapist. He lied to his group that he went to. He lied to her. He lied to his pastors. He lied to all his accountability partners. And, you know, their marriage is now going to be over because how can she possibly trust him when she found out that he has always been deceitful? He has never actually been in recovery. And the mother, who's my friend, said, My heart breaks for the little boy, I'll call him Harold, for the little boy Harold, whose first memory was sexual. So obviously, I don't know much about Harold's history, but obviously he was sexually abused in some way. So she said, I, I just, my heart goes out to that little boy Harold, but I am so angry at the adult Harold who has chosen not to really work on his recovery and do what it takes. And I think that's, I think that's a good way to say it. I love that you put that
0: in that story for our listeners, because I think there are so many women who are angry, and they don't have the compassion, or they have the compassion and they don't have the boundaries. Mm -hmm. So it's one or the other, that they have so much compassion for someone who's been traumatized that they have no boundaries or self-care for themselves. They allow themselves to continue to be in a destructive, abusive relationship out of care for what his life has been as a child. And yet she can't fix that for him. Only he can fix that for him. And I think this is really an important part of trauma work is that the only person who can heal, if you've been hit by a bus and your body is traumatized and you're in intensive care, it's not your fault, but the only one right. who can do the work to recover
1: is you. Right. You have to do the phys- you know, the physical therapy. You have to go to the doctor's appointments. You have to stay in the hospital if that's what the doctor says you need to do. And if you don't, and you don't heal, then that's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> you then know, you, you walk. away Responsibility. Yeah. That's that. right. You walk around
0: with that damage. So a lot of women ask me, okay, my husband has this trauma. What can I do to support him in order for him to do his work? So let's take two scenarios. One is he's sort of willing to do the work, but he's afraid and he doesn't want to spend the money. And, you know, he's sort of agreeing that he's got issues, but he's not all in, in actually doing the work, but agrees with her. How does she support that little bit of hope that maybe he's owning that he has a problem and yet he's still not all in and taking responsibility for actually doing the work.
1: I mean that's a, that's a rough one. I, I mean initially, she can offer to go with him to the first appointment, whether she actually sits in on the first appointment or just waits out in the waiting room but but actually walks in for, you know some men wouldn't find that supportive. Others might. So, you know, obviously it depends on the individual. Being there afterwards and saying, you're free to talk about what happens in counseling or not, but I, I'm here either way. Or if he doesn't want her to go along, as is there anyone else that you'd like just to take that step with you? I mean, men are often very, you know, independent. And so sometimes they don't they don't like to admit that they want that, but often deep down they do. You know, mm-hmm. they do get scared, you know, and if someone has been abused, it's it's not the adult who's scared often. It's that little boy who was traumatized that's really scared. So, yeah. you know, so what's really hard for a support person to do is kind of, on the one hand, you have to recognize, you know, where are some of these feelings come, coming from and, and recognize that at times they may be coming from that scared or hurt or angry little boy um but it isn't really a little boy, so you can't talk to the adult man as though they're a little boy um generally sometimes you can actually if you know if it's kind of pretty clear that you know this is really not an adult that's sitting you know in front of me but for the most part it's it's like that you know what you said before leslie these kind of two aspects of of on one hand, recognizing the fear is maybe coming from a child, but that it's an adult man that you're actually interacting with. But sometimes even a, a, a wife kind of going, you know, I know this is really scare, scary, but even asking, you know, is it adult you that's scared or is it the little boy who was abused that was scared? Even a question like that, because chances are the man hasn't thought about that, might kind of go, oh, gosh, actually, I do kind of feel younger that might actually help someone to take the step kind of going okay as an adult man now i can go into a counseling appointment
0: yeah one of the things that we try to help our women do is be able to ask questions that may be labeled more curious questions like hey is this coming from your big self or a scared little self inside um that would be a curious question because Oftentimes, men who act out or people who act out in abusive ways are often blame, blamers, blame shifters, you know, you triggered me, it's your fault, I'm acting this way, versus self reflectors, they don't reflect on what they do or why they're doing what they're doing they're just blaming and accusing and attacking and that's pretty tough for anybody to stand up against because when you're being blamed and accused and attacked you want to go into explain defend justify um, and argue mode you know not curious question mode so it takes a, a great deal of strength to be able to ask those kind of questions and so that may not be possible for you because you're traumatized by what he's doing to you in those moments we we totally get that But I think this helps us to, as as women who've worked through some of my programs, one of the things we talk about is building that core strength. And one of the elements of core strength, the R step is taking responsibility for yourself and your own safety. So if you need to leave the situation because he's being triggered and he's being scary, that may be your first thing that you need to do to take care of you. But the second step or the last step in core is E, C-O-R-E. And E stands for being empathetic and compassionate. So if you're empathetic and compassionate toward a husband who's acting out of a childhood wound or acting out because he's been traumatized and doesn't know how to manage those angry emotions, he may be very scary. And so it may be prudent for you to leave. And it also may be helpful for you to not hate him for what he does, ruining your marriage, screaming at your kids, scaring you half to death, all those kind of things, because you're gonna be damaged if you leave that relationship in hatred and have empathy for the pain he's in without enabling that behavior to continue.
1: You know what, what, one of my favorite curious questions is related yeah, to, to this is how old do you feel right now? Mm-hmm. And, and often, you know, with, in my situation as a counselor, I'm usually asking that in the context of a counseling session but it usually catches people off guard, but then you can kind of see recognition on the face, and they'll go, "Gosh, I don't know how old, but but younger. Um, and And so that might even be an easier question than to say, "You know, is it a younger part or an older part? Just kind of how old do you feel?" Um, and that might lead somewhere. Or, you know, as you mentioned, maybe it's not possible to ask that at the time. Uh, but I wonder what would happen if you can ask a curious question after the conflict, you know, has passed. If you're able to talk about it and go, you know, this morning when you were really angry or upset about this. I, I don't know if you can go back there enough to be able to answer this question. But I'm just wondering, how how old were you feeling then? And maybe it's gone then, you know, maybe when they're out of that moment, it's not worthwhile. But you never know, someone might be able to kind of go. You know, look back and, and be able to identify that. And this is the hard
0: thing for our women who um, are traumatized by his trauma, right? So he has complex traumatic stress disorder from his childhood, comes into the marriage, maybe she does or she doesn't, but now she's traumatized and triggered right. by his behaviors. And so now she is drowning in her own stuff. And the whole cycle is destructive because the only person in those moments that she can help is herself because he won't see it or won't go for help. So what would you recommend to the woman who's being traumatized by someone who's traumatized and she has compassion for that person, but yet she still has to exercise responsibility for herself and self-care?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a really hard one because in situations like that, it's not past trauma. It's continuing trauma. So I actually have a student right now who left an abusive marriage and, and she's taking trauma courses. She's taking the trauma certificate. So these questions come up a lot and she's very open about her trauma and her past, but she still has some post-traumatic symptoms even though she's been in therapy and really worked on a lot of it. And the reason is, is that she still has contact with him because they have children together and her children are still young and the court has ordered that the children still visit them so she has to interact with him and she has fears about her children's safety so in a sense she is still living with some traumas she no longer actually meets criteria for PTSD which she did five years ago but she still does have some post-traumatic symptoms still has some hyper vigilance anytime he's around or picking up the kids. she's still Uh, has some, you know, anxiety, there's still some things that trigger her, you know, still has some nightmares at times, just not as often and not as intense. But the reality is, is that she can't totally get away from him, even though they're divorced. So when things are really bad, leaving is an option that some women feel that they they need to do. Of course, research shows that the act of leaving can sometimes be very dangerous. So it's a very complex issue. I think what you talked about, Leslie, as walking away in the moment, but at a time when he's calm, letting him know that if you walk away, you're coming back. Because sometimes that can be helpful that he doesn't think that often these men feel very abandoned. You know, their anger is coming out of some childhood wounds and, and abandonment. And so sometimes if a woman leaves, even in the middle of an argument for safety, that can enrage him further because his abandonment issues have been triggered but sometimes it can help if when there isn't a conflict happening the woman can say listen if this happens again I'm going to leave you might even leave the house for an hour or two until you can calm down but then I will come back so just so you're not surprised and you know what my plan is that can sometimes help It can sometimes
0: help and it can sometimes hurt so that he knows now what she's going to do and he'll take her keys or block her from leaving the room. So these are all complex issues and we're not trying to give anyone solution, but we're trying to help women who are listening understand that there is no easy answer. There is no, no, you know, answer for sure. This is going to work to get through to him or for sure. This is what my next step should be. Anyone who comes across that way to you, if you're counseling with a pastor, a people helper, mentor, counselor, um, they don't know for sure what you should do. You don't know for sure what you should do. And this is why it's so, so important that if you are living with someone who is unpredictable and explosive and dangerous, that you do get expert help and maybe multiple versions of expert help so that you can really make a good decision for yourself. But I think it is complex and and the Lord calls us to love even our enemy. And so when we are living with someone who is cruel or harsh or mean or abusive toward us, the first thing that is our natural instinct is to either give it right back or to shut down in a freeze kind of mode or a fawn kind of mode, a trauma response but inside create some hatred for this person. That's our natural response to hate what's happening to us and hate the person who's doing it. And so Jesus warns us that he says that will destroy you. Do not let evil overcome you, but overcome evil with good. And so I think part of Heather's expertise helps us to understand that that good isn't enabling someone to continue to harm you, but the good is to really keep in mind that this person Um, is hurting too. And they're not expressing their hurt in very helpful, constructive ways, for sure. They're expressing their hurt in very damaging, scary ways. Um, And it's okay for you still to take care of yourself. You know, Heather, um, I was abused as a child. And um, once I understood my mother's history of how she was abandoned and abused, it was so much easier for me to have empathy and compassion for her with still good, strong boundaries. You know, I still had to have strong boundaries because she wasn't willing to get her help. But understanding her her childhood and her wounds gave me a lot of compassion not to feel resentful or bitter that she couldn't be the mom I wanted or needed. She just couldn't. She wasn't capable right. because of her own damage and her lack of willingness and ability to do her work. And so I think... Understanding that a little bit and having some understanding of trauma and how that impacts people, um, can give us compassion. And yet, we still want to have really good boundaries for our own safety, for our children's safety, and that may include having to develop a safety plan for the moment. Hey, I'm going to leave the house while you calm down, or a safety plan long term. I can't stay in this relationship this way.
1: I love that you that you're talking about both, Leslie. Both having the passion and the empathy, because. If we are anger and bitter, as you say, that will destroy us. I mean, that doesn't help the other person, but it will destroy it will destroy us. And even research on forgiveness shows that having empathy for the person that has harmed us is an important ingredient for even being able to forgive. Mm -hmm. And I mean, forgiveness is a whole complex topic, as well. (laughs) But even apart from forgiveness, just navigating the day-to-day, you know, I, I wouldn't have considered myself an abused child, uh, but looking back, I think there was some emotional abuse. My dad just had a hot temper. He never was physically abusive. He never swore, swore at us. He, he, he just seemed to me unreasonable and very unreasonable with my mom, unfair, and I had a lot of anger towards my dad growing up, and as a young adult, I started to talk with my dad you know, I wasn't in a position where he was going to physically harm me. So it was, I mean, it was still scary for me, but I wasn't in physical danger. I started with a letter, actually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I knew that if I just talked with him, he just overrun me, you know, he would just talk over me and I wouldn't be heard. So when I was in graduate school, I wrote him a letter and, and told him how upset I was, how angry I was at some of how he had treated me growing up and how he treated mom. And that began a conversation that was really helpful. I still didn't like the way he treated my mom. And so then as an adult, I began talking with my mom more. And she was able to tell me, I think what she did is she understood he was an immigrant child who was nine years old when he arrived in Canada and was Bullied, made fun of. He didn't speak English. He was nine years old. He was very bright and had to start in kindergarten. And I don't think he ever lost that immigrant kind of feeling of having to prove himself. And once I understood kind of what he really went through as a child, it helped me so much. I mean, I still did put boundaries in place. I mean, my dad and I found a way of of interacting. It helped that I wasn't living with him anymore but until the time he died we were able to have a much better relationship and I think a lot of it was just understanding in a very different way what he had been through and that his anger was actually anxiety that -hmm. he was highly anxious and that was a turning point for me it's like I just always labeled my dad as an angry man and once I labeled him as an anxious man who was stressed all the time and that it came out as anger. Well, wow, that was totally different. Really freed mm. me.
0: Yeah, it does to have a different narrative. It still doesn't mean you don't have boundaries or have to no. have conversations, but it does free you to see them in a more human light. Heather, what would you advise a woman who's listening to this who has experienced some trauma in her marriage, a lot of trauma in her marriage. Maybe she's still in it, maybe she's not in it if she were going to a counselor who was trauma-informed, if she were asking for some help, what would be some of the first things that that counselor would encourage her to do to learn to regulate, learn to calm down, learn to begin to manage her triggers? Because so often what we hear is, well, don't trigger me. You have to stop triggering me. And that works like it doesn't work. Like nobody can avoid all your triggers in life. And so it's your responsibility to learn to manage your triggers and identify your triggers. How would you begin to help someone recognize those things and begin to calm themselves down in a moment when they sense that they're being triggered?
1: Well, there are all kinds of tools that can be used to help help kind of calm us down, calm down our nervous systems. So one label for a group of them is is grounding skills and to to ground ourselves means that rather than kind of flying off emotionally or mentally or even physiologically into the past grounding helps us stay in the here and now and recognize where we are right now most grounding tools have to do with our senses so things like okay looking around a room and and pointing out five things that you can see in the room. And then what are four things you can hear? And three things that you could touch. What does it feel like, you know, to touch the chair or to even be aware of, of how it feels sitting in the chair with, with your body, you know, the back of your legs, you know, being on the chair and so on. So anything that uses senses. I have counselees that bring in sour candies into their sessions. Because when they suck on this, the sourness kind of jolts them back to reality. They kind of know, okay, I'm not back where I was as an abused child. I'm here and now and I'm safe here in my office. Now, if someone really isn't safe in the moment, it's kind of hard to ground Then It's easier if you're at least removed from the situation. And then you can kind of remind yourself of these. But even in the midst of the situation, one thing you can always do is breathe. Breathe from your diaphragm. Um, which is down kind of in your stomach, the shallow breathing is from your chest. And if you're often when you're anxious, we breathe more quickly from our chest and we actually can hyperventilate, and it can create more anxiety. Whereas we breathe long, deep breaths, you know, kind of breathe in, hold and breathe out. That actually physiologically has a calming effect so even if you're in the midst if you're being triggered and you're in the midst of an altercation if you can remember to breathe that's an easy thing to do it's not an easy thing to remember but it's actually something that's possible to learn to learn to do and you can do breathing anywhere right you don't have to be in a private space so i mean p- people have to find out what works best for them but breathing and then being aware of the here and now and using our senses Other things are kind of anchoring ourselves. There's a therapist and author, um, Rothschild, who talks about anchors. And that's, is there like a safe person or a safe place or just something I can think of that immediately kind of just helps me to calm down, kind of anchors me to reality, anchors me to safety. So that could be a certain picture or image of Jesus. It could be being out in nature someplace that feels good. It can be anything, but just something where you can use your imagination to kind of help you not go running off emotionally. Those are just a few things.
0: One of the anchors that I use when I feel that way is in Psalm 23, where it says, he leads me beside the still waters and he restores my soul. And so I just, you know, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters and he restores my soul. And I think that's such a beautiful picture for me to go back to mentally when I'm feeling a little out of sorts or I'm feeling helpless, you know, that he restores my soul. I'm not totally in charge of that. I'm, I'm willing to be led. I'm willing to be restored. And I'm asking for that, but I can't do it all myself. And so that's a real helpful picture for me. And two other things that I have done that has helped me remember my age is my car keys. Because I'm not a little girl. I have car keys. I can drive a car. And my wedding ring in that. I'm not a little girl. I am a grown-up now. And I can handle this as a grown-up. And I think those are very important anchors that are easily... Accessible to most women um, that can help them remember when they're reacting to something as they might as a child. And that is dishonoring to them to do that, just like it would be to pee your pants in public. You don't want to do that. To lose your temper in public or to start uh, flipping out at someone because they're triggering you um, usually ends up making you feel ashamed and embarrassed. And so just to remember that. I am a grown-up, and I have different choices and I don't have to act that way. I have different tools now. I can, I can breathe, I can calm down, I can leave the situation if I don't know how to handle it. And those are really important tools to practice in small settings so that when it gets to be a more difficult setting, you can actually execute it.
1: But I lived in Colorado for 17 years, uh, part of what was helpful for some of my clients was to just see the mountains. If they grew up in a place where there weren't mountains, because you can see the mountains even from the city. Um, so I would sometimes just take someone outside my office and say, okay, look at the mountains. Did you have, did you have that view where you were growing up? And I usually knew they'd grown up someplace else. You know, obviously if they grew up in Colorado, that's not going to be helpful, but mm-hmm. a lot of my clients hadn't and it was like, oh yeah, okay yeah, not little, because there are mountains, and I wasn't around mountains when I was little, But something like a wedding band that's right on your body is very accessible. You don't have to be outside or by a window. and And part of you know triggering is when it's most destructive is when you when you don't know that it's happening, you, you just have an emotional reaction, it actually has been a trauma trigger, but you're not necessarily thinking about that at the time. You're just reacting. What can really help is that if you become aware, Of what your triggers are, so that when you're triggered, rather than just your kind of trauma response of fight, you know, flight or freeze response kicking in, your prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking part of your brain, the front part of your brain, can actually kick in and go, Oh, I've just been triggered, but I'm not a little girl. You know, like if you can actually make that conscious connection, you you can understand what's happened then it takes the power out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, now this was a, a simple PTSD reaction. It wasn't a complex one, but I was in a war zone when I was a child living over, overseas, and I had a post-traumatic reaction to the air raid sirens that would come just before bombs would fall. Now, I was only in the war zone for three days, but that was enough you know, for a while. So after that, any kind of siren, police siren, uh, fire engine, um, sounded like the air raid siren, and my immediate response would be fear, you know, and and wanting to hide. But I fairly early on, I was 13 at the time when this happened. That even later as a teenager, I knew I wasn't in a war zone, so that made it a little bit easier. But when I heard a siren, I'd have that initial response, but then I'd be able to use my thinking brain, you know, my prefrontal cortex, and go, it's a, I'm okay. That's either, you know, some other kind of siren. It's not an air right siren. I'm safe. And then I could go on with my day and the fear didn't continue. Now, that's a very specific, concrete example. And if you are in a relationship where it isn't always safe, and there are a lot of triggers, you know, it's going to be harder to do that. But I think you still can. You can kind of learn what triggers you and if you can make that conscious connection rather than just responding or i mean our bodies respond automatically so you can't stop the response but you can keep it from continuing so i think that's the key the sooner that you can catch oh i've been triggered the sooner you can use self-talk and and the other strategies we've talked about in terms of breathing or you know the feeling the wedding ring or whatever, to remind yourself that that you're an adult. But if you can make that cognitive connection to, oh, I've just been triggered, but I'm not, I'm not a little girl. I think
0: that's so helpful. And I think a lot of our women, at least the women that we work with in our organization are triggered by abandonment issues from their childhood. And so, so this whole complex dance that they dance with their abuser, you know, is they're afraid to leave because Of course, that's a danger sign when you leave that you might be more abused, obviously. But it's also, I feel abandoned if he leaves. I feel abandonment if I even leave because I need him, I want him, I want him to change. And so they get caught in focusing on him to deal with their fears. And so I love that you really talk here about when we get triggered, it's our work to work on that. It's not our job to make sure the environment or the other person never triggers us because that's living in crazy land. There's no way that you can ever create an environment where you're never going to be triggered again. You can't live in an environment where there's no sirens, where there's no noise or no people who aggravate you or abandon you. That's just reality. And so part of our work to do is to understand and I don't think we do this enough in our culture is to be aware of how this is impacting me and take responsibility for that impact. Now that it's our fault, it's not your fault that the sirens went off, but it's your responsibility to say, oh my gosh, I'm flipping out inside and I'm fearful. And how can I calm myself down? Or how can I scan my environment and see our bombs falling? No. So now I've got to calm myself down because there is no
1: danger. Uh, I, I love that, Leslie, because the reality is is we cannot change someone else. And so many women want to say, well, how can I make my husband not do the things that he does that either hurt me or that even that I just don't like? You can't. I mean, uh, obviously, we can have conversations and, and so on. But ultimately, we can only work on ourselves. We can only change ourselves. And our spouse has to work on themselves. And. Sometimes when it seems pretty clear that there's one person that's kind of more at fault in terms of an abuser perpetrating abuse, it's easy to forget that not that I have responsibility for the abuse, but that I do have responsibility for my own safety, for my own reactions, my own decisions. Those are things that I'm responsible for. So for
0: many women, they're growing up in a church where for females, there's this myth of the heroic sacrifice that for you to suffer and sacrifice yourself in order to keep your marriage together at all costs is a noble sacrifice. And I think that's really dangerous because it then cuts off her ability to steward and be responsible for herself because it's more important for her to sacrifice herself in order to stay married. And I think that is a teaching that's um, been perpetrated in many churches where our women have attended who have gotten very confused on, you know, actually taking responsibility for themselves, that somehow God is supposed to take responsibility for their safety instead of them taking responsibility for their safety. And God has given them agency to decide, am I safe or not safe? And even Jesus decided in certain situations, I'm not safe. I need to leave the situation. Paul right. learned he wasn't safe in certain situations. He was lowered down in a basket when he wasn't safe in certain situations. Right. right? And so, right. yeah, that's so important for us to recognize it's not unspiritual for us to steward our mental, physical, financial, sexual, and spiritual health.
1: No, I agree. I feel really sad and also angry when I know that, you know, some women have have heard these things from the pulpit. Or going to their pastors, you know, needing help and being basically told to be a godly woman and sacrifice because that's what God calls us to do when, when really, when you look at all scripture, that's, that's a very narrow skewed interpretation of certain scripture verses.
0: Yeah, he does call us to sacrifice when it's for the welfare of someone else, not to enable them to stay unhealthy and damaging to you.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah. So if you have to go to work and earn money to help him pay for his counseling, that might be a sacrifice for you, but it's for his good. Right. Right. But if you're allowing yourself to be damaged and your kids to be damaged in order for him to continue to live at home and do that damage, that's not a noble sacrifice that may be destructive.
1: And of course, children are really impacted and in not good ways. Uh, You know, basically if a woman is sacrificing herself in those ways. Her children are also learning that that they can't take responsibility for their own safety either. <laughs> you know what? What are they going to learn about about how they when they grow up how they respond in in relationships? Um, or they're learning that well, I don't have to respect mom because dad doesn't, so I don't have to listen to her. Dad doesn't. Right. I mean, there are all kinds of bad modeling <laughs> that comes. From that, even though the intention would be good modeling, right? To be Christ-like would be the intention, but unintentionally, a lot of other things can be picked up by children, who always know what's going on, right? Leslie, the reason they always do, it, even if they're in bed and parents think they're asleep. They're not always asleep. They hear, they see, or they see the aftermath. They see broken furniture. They see bruises. They're impacted. And I
0: think there's just an energy in a home mm-hmm. that is either loving and accepting and safe or hostile and scary and not safe. And, you know, I think kids, even if they don't have words to describe what's going on or they're even infants, I think we can pick up about the energy in a room. I mean, we have all felt it. When you walk right. into a room and there's a bunch of crabby, complaining, negative people. Yeah. You feel that energy, even if you aren't in the conversation, you feel that energy. Or if someone's very accepting and loving and happy and easygoing, there's a different kind of energy. And so there yeah. is an energy in a home that impacts children. And I think it's really important for us to understand that it may not always be in their best interest to live in a home where they feel afraid all the time. That safety issue is so important to our well-being because if we're not safe, we can't grow. All we're worried about is being safe. Mm-hmm. And so we can't learn, we can't grow, we can't mat, you know mature and do our milestones as children that we need to because we're just worried about Mom, we're worried about Dad, we're worried about our safety. we're worried about you know our, our livelihood or our, how we're going to go to bed at night. and so we can't function in a, in a mature way or mature in a good way if we're living in fear all the time. And so I think that's a real important self-awareness that this isn't healthy for me to live like this. Right. Anything else you'd like to share with anybody who's out there who's struggling with finding the right help? How might someone find a good trauma-informed counselor?
1: Well, um, asking some good questions is important because not all trauma counselors deal with complex trauma. So one of the questions I would ask is if, you know, look for a trauma specialist and then ask at at an intake or whatever, what kind of trauma are you are you trained in? Um, uh, and ask specifically about complex trauma, do you work with complex trauma? And if the counselor kind of or whoever the intake worker kind of doesn't seem to know what you're talking about, then that's probably not going to be a good counselor for you. In, in the case of intimate partner violence, um not just any complex trauma, therapist is necessarily going to understand the dynamics of an abusive relationship. So if if that's the situation, then someone really needs to find someone who, who has been trained specifically to work with um, people who've been in abusive relationships, as well as understands, and if you're also a childhood trauma survivor who also understands complex trauma. So in a sense, someone who has kind of a dual expertise can be helpful, and that's harder, but they're around. If both aren't available, then you'll at least kind of find one or the other. And then the other thing is, the advice that I would give someone looking for a counselor is make three appointments with people that over the phone sound as though they're all kind of trained and go to first appointments for all three of them and see where you feel most comfortable. In other words, don't feel like just because you made an appointment, you're stuck with this therapist, even if you don't really click or you're not sure that they know what they're talking about or whatever. And if none of those three work, then I would, you know, make, make some more appointments. Uh, I, that That's another way. You, you don't have to be in a position where you're feeling victimized, not not that your therapist is harming you, but that you're maybe not getting what you need from a particular provider. So I would just encourage you, don't be afraid to kind of shop around, or you could even tell people when you're making appointments, I'm making appointments with two other people and you know, kind of see who might be the best fit for me. Hmm.
0: I love that advice. And it really is very empowering for you to get to decide, like you get to decide who you want to work with and who you feel most comfortable with. And so many women who are in, especially intimate partner, violence kind of situations have lost their ability to decide because you live with someone who controls those decisions. And so for you right. to make a decision, I could decide whether or not I want to work with you and whether or not I trust you and whether or not I feel safe here. And I get to decide that.
1: Right. And, and, and it's okay if you, if you don't with a particular counselor. Some of it, they may be great. They may be an expert. They may have wonderful training. It may just be like kind of a personality style clash. It just doesn't work together. I mean, it is a relationship. and you know so sometimes people can be equally trained and equally kind of good at what they do, but there does have to be a sense of fit between the counselor and the counselor and and that's fine. just know that going, yeah,
0: on. I love that. You know the truth is you've if you've been wounded in a relationship and traumatized in a relationship, then the track of healing is in relationship. That's why our groups are so important because we emphasize that you do need that healing in relationship. And so finding the right fit, whether it's in a group setting or in a one-on-one counseling relationship, finding the right fit that fits for you and you feel safe and comfortable and free to be yourself and learn to be yourself and learn to find yourself is going to be really, really important. And so we just want to leave you with that empowering statement that you get to decide, you get to choose who you want to work with because you want to get well and you may need some help in the journey. Thanks Heather so much. We really appreciate your expertise here and your willingness to share that with our audience. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to relationship truth unfiltered. Our goal is for each of our listeners to receive real practical relationship help. If you know small group coaching would benefit you, go to leslievernick.com forward slash group coaching and may God bless all of your relationships with him, with yourself and with others.